Welcome to the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences podcast. My name is Michael Beal. I'm an associate professor at California State University, Northridge, and a speech-language pathologist at UCLA Medical Center. In this episode of the ANCDS podcast, I have a conversation with Dr. Heather Clark. Dr. Clark is Chair of Speech Pathology in the Department of Neurology and Associate Professor in the College of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. She's also ANCDS Board Certified and a Fellow of the American Speech-Language Hearing Association. Dr. Clark is currently a co-investigator in several projects examining the nature of speech, language, and swallowing impairments in degenerative neurologic disease. But most of her time is spent clinically with a focus on differential diagnosis of communication and swallowing disorders in adults and children. To begin our conversation, I asked Dr. Clark to describe how she became interested in communication disorders and sciences. Well, I always think my my story is a little bit boring. I I knew I had some interest in a rehabilitative um, kind of position, and my early experience, um, uh, childhood, high school, was with individuals with intellectual disabilities. And so that that's what piqued my interest in in kind of a helping profession, but but you know with a professional bent and you know physical therapy, occupation, something like that. Yeah. Um, so I took just an intro to rehab course at the University of North Dakota, and one of the units was on speech language pathology, and it you know very much got my interest. So uh, when I went uh, made an appointment to talk with one of the advisors over there and the faculty member. I spoke with, and I, I still remember the conversation very clearly. You know, she asked why this interests me. I didn't really have a very good reason, yeah. and and then she went on to explain that you need to have a master's degree, and it's very competitive, and uh, you know all the things that we would say to students even now, thirty years later. Mm. And I said something like, "Well, you haven't scared me off yet, <laughs> so you know, I'm still." Um, still interested. And um, and then once I entered the major, I was definitely intrigued. I felt like this was an area of study that was very interesting and had opportunities um, for a lot of different professional directions. You know, all the reasons that are still true yeah. for speech pathologists. Did you go right from your master's degree into a PhD program? I did. And thank you for asking that because it was such the per- a perfect segue mm. from what I just told you. That same faculty member, you know, fast forward three years, four years, I was heavily encouraged by my mentors to consider getting a PhD, even at the master's level. Mm. What many people don't know about me is um, at that time in my life, I was married, had two children, and was working several jobs. Oh, wow. And my perspective was I was very sick of being poor. Uh-huh, <laughs> and so uh-huh. I was not interested in staying in school any sure. longer. But again, this same faculty member in the very nicest way, and I'm, you know, said, you know, Heather, you're not the best clinician in the world. <laughs> um, trying to encourage me to think about going another direction. Why do you think um, you said that, that you weren't the best <laughs> clinician? Well, I mean, it, it was 
probably true. Well, yeah, but you know, nobody. Exactly. I mean, he must have thought you were particularly bad. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know. Huh. Um, but but uh, and in fact, I said, well, you know, I'm still not convinced. Um, right. And so I had every intention of working clinically. Yeah. But my husband was going to attend the University of Iowa for his doctorate. Everybody told me if you're going to be in Iowa City, the least you can do is apply for the doctoral program. Yeah. Which I did as a backup. And in fact, I did not get a job. And hmm. so the PhD was my backup plan. And then of course it's all history from there. But uh, so but honestly, you're, what it was... your kids just a peanut butter sandwiches? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> of course, it's all relative when you're poor. And so sure. um, we went from uh, having to work four jobs to be that poor to only having to be graduate assistants to be that poor. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, that's know. a huge. Yeah. You're yeah, it's the all relative. There. Yeah. Right. But in my doctoral program, I was able to do my CFY mm. at the Iowa City VA. And as soon as I completed my CFY, then I just joined that staff full time and um, and then completed my doctorate while I was working full time. Yeah. You know, I've heard people say, and, you know, I don't have my PhD, so I can't really speak about this with, from firsthand experience, but um, that that people should get their master's, go out, work a bit. And then come back and get their PhD because, well, maybe they'd have a better idea of what their genuine interests are. Uh, and B, maybe having some clinical experience will help them understand better what the important questions are, at least if they're thinking about doing treatment research. Uh, what do you think about that? I, I think that's that would be my perspective as well. Uh -huh. um, the danger, I think, is that once you leave school and mm. basically have a job and are earning, yeah. um, it becomes a little bit harder to convince yourself that you're going to give up your financial livelihood, devote yourself to a you know, pretty intense course of study, only to come out being qualified for jobs that pay less than the one you were currently in. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, I, I, I get that. Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, I think it means that the people who do that, um, you know, have, have the right incentive. They're truly motivated mm -hmm. uh, by the, the new scientific process that they're going to learn and, you know, their opportunity to, you know, maybe contribute new information to our uh, knowledge base. And so I, I, I do think it is um, all else being equal, that mm -hmm. that must be a better way to come into a research program is, you know, actually having some clinical questions in mind. Of course, that's my bias as a clinician. Yeah. That is, I, um, I think all the most important questions are clinical, uh -huh. which is not fair. That there's obviously very important right. questions that aren't. So, Well, and this kind of ties in for me with uh, your position now and this 
uh, this opportunity that you provide for a postdoc fellowship that's clinically, you know, that is about uh, clinical experience and, and how the other thing that's interesting about this is that to the best of my knowledge, there's nothing else out there like that. In other words, there's no opportunity for, let's say, uh, someone who goes straight from a master's to a PhD program to on the other to after that having some high quality mentored clinical experience that will help them as researchers when they're if they are for example going to do treatment research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as as researchers and um, and as potential faculty, yeah. um, being able to help students understand how to apply the information they're learning because they can bring in cases and talk about their experience. But yeah, let me tell you a little bit about our postdoc fellowship. Yeah, yeah for sure. So it has been uh, around for a long time. I believe we're up to nearly 50 alumni mm. of the postdoctoral fellowship. And I think most individuals who do the fellowship do a two-year fellowship, although it's available for a single year, which is what I did a number of years ago when I did the postdoc as a um, sabbatical year from my faculty position. But the the fellowship, unlike most postdocs, is really a clinical fellowship. The primary responsibility of the fellow and the primary objectives of the fellowship are to develop clinical competence and advanced clinical expertise in neurologic communication disorders. At Mayo Clinic, the Division of Speech Pathology is housed in neurology and the consulting staff, so our PhD level staff, serve as consultants to neurology and other medical specialties. So when there is usually in the assessment or diagnostic workup stage of the patient's visit, we evaluate the patients to characterize any communication disorders and thereby inform the medical workup and ultimate uh, diagnosis. And so the, the fellow gets an opportunity to observe literally thousands of these assessments, differential diagnosis, interactions with uh, patients, and gets to be the clinician for hundreds while they complete the fellowship. And the experience is both unique in that, um, of course, the consultative model of speech pathology within the Department of Neurology and Mayo Clinic is pretty unique, I think. But we also, as consultants and as and and what the fellow is responsible for too, is um, you know your standard speech pathology practice in an acute care hospital. Yeah. So there's you know kind of the unique Mayo experience, and then the the experience that is pretty typical of most other medical centers. Yeah. Well, I want I want to come back to uh, the fellowship, but I but. I want to ask you right now more about your your work as a consultant and mm-hmm. how I that seems to be kind of unique. 
you know, I'll start off just with a, a little bit, an anecdote of some of my experience. So in the clinical doctorate degree from Pitt, uh, at the end of the program, we were supposed to choose three medical settings to, to do an internship with her, three medical specialties. And the idea was that we would actually wouldn't do any speech pathology. We would do as much of what the healthcare practitioner that we were working with does, uh, you know, that we could do legally. So one of my choices was the neurobehavior clinic at UCLA, uh -huh. which specializes in diagnosing focal dementias. Dr. Mario Mendez is there, very well-known um, neurobehavioralist. And when I was there, one of the things I realized is that the one area of neurogenic speech and language problems that the neurologist didn't feel very confident about was motor speech disorders. And, and actually, I found that I was of service in, in, in these certain situations from a diagnostic standpoint. So that's what you're doing all day long. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, I think the model grew up very naturally in the Mayo group practice, because as you know, or maybe you don't know, um, but Mayo's history in growing up as a group practice with specialists was was kind of a unique model in the United States. But but that that um, approach has mm -hmm. been maintained across the years. So um, it was a very natural uh, outgrowth for Mayo to seek out experts in a specific area, such as speech language pathology, to help care for the whole patient, um, yeah. but also to, um, as I said, you know, inform the workup. So Mayo Clinic is extremely collaborative, and even though most of the staff have probably wide expertise that's, you know, wider than probably most general practitioners would, you know, hope to be. Yeah. Um, but we still, um, the, the model is to really ask the expert. Mm -hmm. And so, so patients um, often see several neurologists in their workup hmm. so that the right expertise is mined. But at Mayo, the neurology residents most of them uh, complete a two-week rotation with speech-language pathology. Oh, interesting. So, um, so they get much deeper and richer exposure to speech and language disorders than probably any neurologist mm. anywhere. But what we tell them as they go through this process, because you know we are actually trying to help them tune their ear and be aware of the most salient features mm -hmm. and um, because they might very well find themselves in a setting where they don't have a speech language pathologist to consult with in the way that Mayo does. You know, so we, we try to give them those listening skills or help them develop that. But we say, you know, in fact, we've trained for 10 years <laughs> to develop the skill you're trying to develop in two weeks. Yeah. So, so in fact, you know, consult us, we'll be happy to help you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
So can you describe your job in a little bit more detail? What does your day look like? Sure. So our practices divvied up in probably an unusual way, but I, I'm starting to appreciate there probably is no typical speech language pathology practice. Every place kind of grows itself in a unique way. Yeah. But the the consultants are primarily responsible for assessment. Mm -hmm. And so we care for patients in the acute hospital setting. And our focus there is on impairments of communication and cognition. We have other expert clinicians in dysphagia who care for patients with swallowing concerns. And even recently, a portion of our staff has become particularly uh, skilled in treating folks on trach and vent. And so even though that was part of our practice, uh, we now have specialists who attend to those patients as well. So it's on a, a typical day, we might spend the morning uh, seeing patients at the hospital who have been referred for communication or cognitive assessment. And then we have kind of a regular outpatient clinic where the patients come to us um, as you know get referred for an assessment mm. and then we also provide care in a number of multidisciplinary clinics that might function a little bit different so we have an ALS clinic craniofacial clinic VPI clinic mm. various uh, DBS things like that I wasn't aware that the position that you have is kind of as broad as it is in terms of being in acute also and doing craniofacial work. I guess I was under the assumption that you were just diagnosing the odd, what is this mm -hmm. patient yeah. and helping the neurologist come to a differential diagnosis. How much of your job is doing that? Um, I would say that accounts for about half. Okay. Of what we do, yeah. Right. You know, on any given day, that's more or less of our of our practice. Yeah. One of the things, you know, we we kind of talked past training in the fellowship, but one of the unique opportunities we have with this postdoc fellowship is we have, um, you know, closed circuit camera system that many right. training centers have, but because of the the flexibility we're allowed in our practice and the time we're allotted to see patients, what is a, a typical experience for the fellow would be to watch the clinical interaction with the consultant and the patient and their family. Before debriefing with the patient, the consultant might then excuse themselves, come and have a conversation with the fellow so that they have an opportunity to talk through their own diagnosis or their own observations and thoughts before they hear the consultant give their findings. And then there's a little bit of opportunity for conversation. We go back to the patient and their family, have the debriefing with them, provide whatever recommendations we might offer, and then come back and have uh, another conversation with the fellow. Yeah. And this is, we're afforded this not just with our trainees, but with each other. So mm. if I'm in my office, you know, writing a report or, or checking email, I can be watching Joe Duffy with his patient. Mm -hmm. And so 
I, I think most of us could appreciate what a valuable opportunity that is to watch master clinicians, even if you're a master clinician yourself, mm. but to just actually see how somebody else is doing it and learning from that. And many times I leave my office and go get in on the conversation with the fellow. Yeah. Well, I think that's actually kind of a weakness in the way that we train <clears throat> master's level students is that they get sometimes no real observation of a licensed therapist doing what they do and and to me it seems like well it would be more useful to watch somebody who really knows what they're doing because now I don't I don't feel under surveillance um, I can think and reflect about what's going on here and why is this happening or whatnot. I think I could probably have a better conversation with the supervisor afterwards because of the reflection I did, etc. Whether it was, you know, less about me and kind of self-ruminating on whether I did the right thing or not do the right thing. But that's not the way it is. People kind of, it's this kind of sink or swim, uh, often kind of approach. And I don't know, it, it, it just doesn't seem like the right way to do it to me. Yeah, I, I agree that, or at least have very much come to appreciate how valuable it is to to just observe and yeah. uh, and and discuss as well but but again like you said really see somebody at work who knows what they're doing and and then have an opportunity to reflect on that without it being as you said um, being under surveillance and uh, having the anxiety of being evaluated yourself and yeah I agree I mean, I get it with like, for example, doing modified barium swallow studies where there truly is this perceptual skill that you develop wherein you're able to detect uh, physiologic abnormalities in real time when and things are going by quickly and you're able to make decisions in real time pretty quickly about you. What consistency do we do now? What uh, posture might we try? And having a supervisor stand behind you and watching you make sure everything goes okay, obviously that protects the patient. But, um, you know, and, and in that respect, I guess what I'm saying is there's, there's a particular kind of skill that one needs to, you just, there's no way around doing it to get sure. good at it and and through the repetitive doing of it you get a lot better i don't know for example that i need to practice administering semantic feature analysis over and over again before i finally get better at it um, <laughs> i think so much of my practice let's say with neurogenic communication disorders is you know, there's, it's about more of a conceptual understanding. And clearly, you know, there's the, the how you relate to people kind of thing. And, and yeah. you know, that needs to be talked about and practiced too. Yeah. But 
Yeah. Well, maybe I'll respond to that, Mike, because mm -hmm. I think, again, this is one of the places where Mayo's practice is probably unique in that, um, as you know, we we do differential diagnosis of motor speech disorders, and we base most of our conclusions on perceptual features that we mm. we hear. We don't do a lot of physiologic measurement to, well, especially to inform differential diagnosis. You know, our philosophy is the motor speech disorder is what it sounds like. It's it's not what the acoustics say. But your observation that you know, this repetition is so important in learning. I think that's very much the case in motor speech disorders as well. The Mayo classification system of dysarthria um, is often criticized because students or even clinicians hmm. aren't very good at classifying people. Um, yeah. And uh, and I, you know, I, I don't think Joe would mind if I quote him when when he says, well, if if somebody who's never been trained in it can't do it, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist or can't be done. Right. Yeah. And so I think, you know, what what we have come to or you know appreciate is that yes, if you if you actually have as your job listening to people and identifying the disorder and you do that thousands of times a year, you can actually do it. <laughs> Right. So there's there's a kind of ear training that happens. Yes. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, it's interesting that you say that because one of the things I wanted to ask you was about the limits of a perceptual speech evaluation, because we don't have a lot of research out there about, for example, how good our licensed therapist at correctly identifying whether this is, let's say, a toxic a form right. of ataxic dysarthria or a, a praxis of speech. Um, mm -hmm. And the little research that is out there, and I'm thinking of two studies, one that looked at a, apparently experienced motor, you know, experienced therapists, experienced with uh, diagnosing and managing people with motor speech disorder. These weren't male clinic people. And in that study, it found that therapists didn't agree very well. Yeah. And then there was another study uh, looking at neurologists and they were even worse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. But I guess, are, are there really limits to the perceptual part of the evaluation? I think there, there certainly are limits to the perceptual evaluation, especially when you ask what is its purpose and what can it do? Mm. So what the perceptual exam is particularly well suited for is in fact differential diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So there are distinctive features and and not just as you as you know, it's not just the set of individual features, but what really guides our differential diagnosis is pattern recognition. Mm. So you know so we hear a pattern that might include slow rate, irregular articulatory breakdowns, scanning, you know, um, so we can list the features that are in that gestalt pattern. But in fact, it's the whole pattern itself that we recognize. And so the limitation, or so we could ask then, if that's what perceptual analysis is particularly well suited for, how 
well does it do that? Yeah. And I would say in our practice, and again, we know we're a little unique in mm-hmm. in our both our opportunities and our role within uh, speech pathology in a department of neurology. Um, but I think in our own experience, we would say that, you know, on any given week, we probably feel like we've nailed it 85 to 90 percent of the time mm-hmm. um, that that we're pretty certain of what we're hearing and the medical diagnosis ultimately agrees or is consistent with the disorder that we identify. But that is certainly not to say we don't have patients where we end up writing in our report, you know, there are features that sound flaccid or toxic or whatever, but I also hear these other features and I'm not quite certain what is ultimately the, you know, it's like, I'm just not certain. And then there um, are also times when we're wrong. So what we, what we think we hear, and then when we uh, either the patient gets finishes their workup, or we see them again, three months later, and we realize, oh, you know, that feature I thought I was picking out then was clearly the first part of this disorder, and not the disorder that I thought it was. But I, I think we're, we, we feel like the process is effective enough Mm -hmm. that we're, we're comfortable with it with, you know, with that level of accuracy, that sounds terrible. So we're not, obviously we're not pleased that we make mistakes or can't always answer the question, but we recognize that as, um, you know, just part of the world. Yeah. But the other part of that is if we, are there, are there other measures we could do that would improve our differential diagnosis? And I don't think we've been convinced that there is right now. So the instrumental evaluation isn't, I know there are a a few studies out there that, that have investigated that. What do you think? Well, I think, and now I'm really speaking anecdotally and just, you know, my, my clinical perspective on this is that the yield would be low for us. Mm -hmm. So for, for our purposes, if we can detect weakness and it fits a flaccid pattern, then, then we've, we've answered the question that, that we have, and that is what is this disorder? So measuring tongue strength at that point might not inform us for our purposes of differential diagnosis. And so, you know, we, we do acoustic measures for our research and we do find differences in some of the groups that we study. And so in theory, we could, um, you know, we're equipped, skilled, whatever, to do acoustic analysis for any patient that walks through the door. But the likelihood that that analysis would give us more than what we're getting from the perceptual exam, I think, is is low. That is, the yield would be low. What's? But if our purposes were different, Mm -hmm. that is, if our primary role wasn't differential diagnosis, if our primary role was to, um, you know, set a baseline mm-hmm. or um, detect very subtle difference changes over time, um, then then I think we would employ those other measures more consistently because that's 
um, their strength. That's right. the, the part that those tools add. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, but for now, uh, or, you know, but for, for our role right now, um, I don't, I don't think we'd have, would have much yield. Yeah. Um, how, how helpful is knowing something about the, let's say the neuroimaging of a patient. Mm -hmm. it, it, it seems to me that at least in my practice, that if I know something about what part of the nervous system there's a lesion, let's say, mm -hmm. that the motor speech disorders map onto the neuroanatomy pretty reliably. Is that, is, is, am I on the right track here? Yeah, no, I, I, I do think that's, that's pretty consistent with our observation as well. Mm -hmm. That again, kind of probably speaks a little bit to, again, kind of the difference in our practice in mm -hmm. that we typically see patients before they've received their neurologic diagnosis and they may or may not have had imaging before we see them. But I think if, let me, let me back up. So the sure. process, the patient arrives at Mayo Clinic, they, um, assuming their main complaint is something neurologic, although often they present elsewhere in the clinic, but yeah. they see a neurologist for an extended consultation after which the neurologist will order relevant um, subspecialty consultations, imaging, lab work, you know, all of those things. And then those, all of those appointments will happen within the next several days. And then the patient will meet back with that primary uh, neurologist for the follow-up. So mm -hmm. the, you know, the discussion of diagnosis and treatment plan, et cetera. So if, if the neurologist sees that their assessment, the imaging, the lab work, the speech pathology assessment, if all of that aligns, then I think they feel very confident in the diagnosis that they offer. Mm. And I would say that happens. In other words, I think the speech diagnosis aligns well. I have no idea what percentage of the time. Joe yeah. probably knows. Yeah. But a good percentage of the time. Mm -hmm. um, but when it doesn't, yeah. I think the neurologists are a little bit more careful or would say, you know, all of these or, you know, these three things might suggest this is a tauopathy, but these other two observations don't fit nicely with that. So if, if you have imaging ahead of time, that can guide your hypotheses about what you think the motor speech diagnosis is likely to be. And of course, then you could argue it would bias you a little bit, but mm. it, you know, that's right. human. But if you then do the motor speech exam and it doesn't align with that imaging, then your role would be to communicate that to the referring neurologist or physician saying, you know, we don't really have a diagnosis that accounts for this aspect of their speech disorder. Yeah. And, you know, is there is there more to consider? Yeah. And I, and I guess, you know, I was just thinking, well, a, a person who has a lesion somewhere that doesn't mean that that particular lesion is the cause of their speech problems. 
that, you know, particularly with the progressive neurologic diseases, sometimes the first signs are changes in speech before anything shows up right. on neuroimaging. So, yeah, so the, precisely. The, that uh, perceptual evaluation is still really important for making a differential diagnosis from the neurologist's point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep, exactly. But I don't think many speech pathologists ever have that experience, really. Yeah. Of helping uh, a neurologist come to a differential diagnosis. Yeah, I agree. It's not very typical of U.S. practice patterns or probably most other places in the mm. world. We're extremely fortunate at Mayo to to have that opportunity, you know, that we have this role and that it's, um, it's fascinating, it's fun, it's yeah. rewarding. But if, if you'd allow me, I think it's also very fortunate for our patients yeah. because Mayo Clinic actually um, ends up seeing a lot of people who have speech or language concerns as their primary complaint, who have been through many workups locally, maybe even been through courses of speech and language therapy who don't have a diagnosis. Mm. But when they come to Mayo Clinic, they get, they get an assessment that's focused on differential diagnosis, whereas in a community practice, the assessment might be on treatment planning, mm -hmm. which is a different, it's a different purpose and right. wouldn't include the same judgments. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that as a profession, we haven't done a very good job of training people to advance to an advanced level of skill, wherein, like your position, they genuinely could, in a collaborative way, work with a neurologist, particularly in relationship to, again, identifying progressive neurologic diseases. Is that your Im impression too? Um, it is. Yeah, uh -huh. I, I, I do think there's just not as many models like we have here right. that would give clinicians that opportunity. I think that model is much more common in ENT practices mm. where the speech language pathologist works very closely with the ENT physician yeah. to both diagnose and then treat laryngeal disorders. Um, but I don't think we have that model in neurology as much. And that's both a result of how neurologists are trained as well as how speech pathologists are trained. Neurologists trained at Mayo Clinic think that all speech pathologists do this and are surprised to learn that they don't. Yeah, yeah. I want to go back to the to the fellowship if we could. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I think, I don't know if you said this, we talked a little bit before I hit record. So I'm trying to remember it, whether you said this before I hit record or after, but you, you mentioned that the, the fellowship, one of the benefits of it is that essentially people are better instructors when they come out of that program. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the goal, I think, mm. is that we, we, want, we want our graduates to 
have enough clinical experience that they can share their expertise in context. So when they're teaching in the classroom, they have clinical cases to draw on. They have a um, richer understanding of just neurology in general than most of us have, even if we have studied neurologic communication disorders. And just, you know, having an appreciation for the clinical process. Um, so not just what the disorders are, but, you know, what what we do when we're helping these patients. Right. I guess I'm, I'm thinking about the medical model of education, wherein students get a lot of mentoring in a clinical context by experts, mm-hmm. or at least, you know, very competent people yeah. and that the instructors in medical school unless maybe they're teaching you know basic science type of classes are people who still have a practice um, yeah. rather than our model which is let's say you could go from your master's degree right into a PhD program, maybe manage to get your CFY, and then teach and never see patients again. And But stand up in front of a class and tell people how to be a therapist. That seems crazy to me. Yeah, it, I, when, when you, uh, yeah, I think when we lay it out like that, it does, mm-hmm. it does seem less than ideal. Yeah. And, um, and of course, we know that there are gifted instructors and it's this isn't a you know a necessarily an indictment of um, folks who are you know choosing academics but but it seems intuitive that if we want strong clinicians who are you know are prepared for the clinical setting Hmm. it only makes sense that the individuals teaching them mentoring them have some experience and perhaps are even active in that setting themselves. Or I think, again, it was before we turned on the recorder, we were talking about the clinical doctorate. Yeah. Um, you know, otherwise the, the clinical experience itself has to be richer, longer, you know, medical mm-hmm. students graduate and most of them have you know, not only have they done clinicals all through graduate school, but then they go into full-time clinical practice as a trainee for a number of years before they're considered independent clinicians. Right. So. Yeah. Well, I don't know how to put this into words, but, and this comes out of my, you know, I, I think I have a different experience than many speech pathologists in the sense that for various reasons, I have, I'm a member, I I have the opportunity to be with researchers and, you know, go to their conferences and whatnot. But then I also am in the camp of, you know, just your everyday speech pathologist. And I don't, I, I guess I'll just be fairly blunt about this, and this is on me. Um, 
if you haven't spent your thousands of hours, thousands of hours, sitting across the table from someone, trying to figure out how to help them in a real and meaningful way, Mm -hmm. and have had the repeated experience of banging your head against the wall, trying to figure out how to help somebody, that um, doesn't matter how smart you are, doesn't matter how well you know the literature. If you haven't had that experience, something is missing when you stand up and tell other people how to be a therapist. Um, and, and, you know, uh, but that is the norm. And, uh, yeah, so that, <laughs> I know that's, I know that's, uh, you know, maybe not a, a, a popular thing to say, but I don't know. It just, it seems self-evident to me. Um, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know that. And like I said, it is hard to put my, to put, uh, put it into words, but I think if you haven't had those experiences, then the questions you ask, are maybe different and what you think needs emphasis is different. I don't know. I'm, I'm not being very uh, coherent here, but I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't, I, I, I think your um, uh, reflection on that seems very, it's reasonable and, um, and then you can imagine or, you know, actually have been in the field for a long time now, so I can kind of see how clinical training has evolved a little bit. But, you know, recognizing that our, um, as a discipline, our response to that or our attempts to alleviate that are the clinical practica and internships and, and things like that. So we, we um, give clinicians opportunity to work with master clinicians at some other point in their training, uh, presumably, but, but we know the process is not perfect. And, you know, I spent a number of years in the classroom as well, and it wasn't at all unusual for me to say something in class, um, and then be told by a student that a clinical supervisor said exactly the opposite or, um, you know, so, so it's not, you know, it, it is not a perfect system or that, or even that I was necessarily the one that was right sure. um, or whatever, but you know, it's uh, um, certainly room, I think for um, continued improvement. Yeah. 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 Um, well, and no, go oh, ahead. I was just gonna say, and, you know, and just one of the, you know, one of the ways that we, you know, we just even as individual practices can can help in that ultimately is just um, how we contribute to the mentoring of the next generation's clinicians. So yeah. um, at our um, facility or, you know, in Rochester, we don't take graduate level trainee clinicians, mm. um, but we have a very highly structured CFY that is, you know, probably 
more closely mentored than many internships are. Yeah. And then we and then we have this, you know, postdoctoral fellowship that's um, not only very highly mentored, but just, you know, uh, high level complex cases. You know, so so our, our you know we attempt to contribute in that way. And so you know, there's probably some role of individual practices to find ways to make sure our, our profession stays highest quality. Yeah, and and having those clinicians out there in clinics who are practicing at a high level, in some ways, I think maybe they have a, a responsibility to share that and with developing clinicians, even though, and I'm thinking of a couple of clinics I know where they don't take students because they say they're too busy. Mm-hmm. And and they are the clinics that should be taking the students because yeah. they they their their clinicians are very good and they're the ones that really have something to offer. Well, in an opportunity to create some synergy here, mm. we could we could argue that one of the responsibilities of experts in neurologic communication disorders is to seek out those additional credentials that ad- identify themselves as experts, something mm. like board certification <laughs> by ANCBS, <laughs> um, and and suggest to training programs that that they should seek board certified members to, or board certified folks to be the ones who mentor their students. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the, the ANCBS process for board certification is a little rigorous, very doable, but it is the kind of process that I think one can feel fairly confident that if someone has gone through it successfully, that those initials behind their name mean something real. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Well, I don't know that we have a lot of time left, mm-hmm. and I really want to move on to another area that I think is interesting and that you've been involved with, and that is the, the treatment part, specifically oral motor exercises, uh, physiologic treatments for motor speech disorders, specifically dysarthria. And kind of this question of, you know, should we be doing strengthening exercises, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which are, I think, even though there have been some good papers out there, uh, review papers in particular, and you wrote one, I think, back in 2001, 2003, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, specifically about neuromuscular treatments, that's very good. Uh, even though those papers are out there, from my perspective, there's still a lot of people doing these type of exercises um, that uh, maybe they shouldn't, you know, they're not appropriate for their clients. Is there a role for these exercises at all? Yeah. In practice? Um, Yeah. So people have heard me talk. I often tell the story of how I got into writing that review paper Um, back in 2003 was my observation that colleagues 
not only speech pathology colleagues, but my occupational and ther uh, physical therapy colleagues seemed to know things about the motor system that I didn't know. <laughs> and that that the deficit was in my understanding and so i sought to teach myself figured i must have you know been sick that day that they covered it um so, so sought to educate myself and then you know came to through that process uh come to at least some hypotheses about how these kinds of interventions would seem to apply in the muscle groups that we're interested in, and then developed a, a program of research to test those hypotheses. And I'm not a, alone in that area of study. Hmm. Um, so through that process, there, there are probably some, if you'll forgive me, some generalities that seem to be the case. One is that if you group patients with motor speech disorders, put them all in a group, and compare them to people who don't have motor speech disorders, that group will demonstrate weakness or they will have, you know, they'll have weakness or strength that's lower in average than mm -hmm. the people without motor speech disorders. Mm -hmm. If and you is then that try to across the different dysarthria types. Well, in, in a, an unpublished study, so mm -hmm. just uh, thank you for reminding me, I have a data that are almost 10 years old that I haven't published yet. Um, <laughs> but I, if you, I will circle around to that. That's one of the limitations of the research is that usually either people with dysarthria in general or people with dysarthria and apraxia of speech undifferentiated are grouped together. Right. So that's one of the limitations. Or the subjects are grouped by disease rather mm. than by type of dysarthria. Right. Um, but, but the issue being group data but then if you try to look within that group and correlate degree of weakness with degree of speech impairment, the, the results are not impressive at all. The, the research project I did at Mayo when I was here for the fellowship was measuring orofacial strength in the different subtypes of dysarthria, really testing the hypotheses that uh, Darley Aronson and Brown and Joe Duffy have continued to write about in their, or, you know, he has continued to write in his text that some of these dysarthrias are characterized by weakness and others of them aren't. Mm. And spoiler alert, my findings did agree with that. Yeah. So spastic, flaccid had weakness, mm. um, ataxic did not, and hypokinetic was somewhere in the middle there. Mm -hmm. So in terms of a generality, I think that's where I was going is that when you see those kinds of findings, it's you know not an unreasonable leap to think if weakness is present in a speech disorder, then perhaps increasing strength will alleviate the speech difficulty. And that's where our literature has really not been able to support that conclusion, at least for the oral articulators. Mm -hmm. um, there is growing evidence that strength training of the respiratory muscles or even laryngeal musculature in concert with the respiratory muscles might have some, uh, you know, not just measurable, but meaningful benefit for improving speech. But tongue strengthening and other oral motor exercises just have not um, 
well, they have not been studied as much for one thing, but but also the the data that is out there is not very reassuring. And of course, the caveat there is that for swallowing, the same exercises that don't seem to do much for speech may have some role. Mm. So it's not um, we we don't want to as therapists throw the uh, baby out with the bathwater, mm-hmm. um, right. but just of course that's always our challenge is to know which interventions are applicable at any given time so and correct me if i'm wrong the reason that the strengthening exercises aren't as useful in speech as they are in swallowing is because well we don't need a lot of strength to speak and the their other neuromuscular factors that are more relevant, such as, I guess, um, speed and accuracy. Well, speed, accuracy, I don't know if you would consider that a, a muscle physiology yeah. component or not. Yeah, I think that is kind of the most obvious explanation. Mm. I, I believe, or, you know, my, my sense is it's going to be a little bit more complicated than that mm. because mm-hmm. even swallowing requires submaximal pressures. Mm than what we can produce and the movements are coordinated and maybe they're not quite as rapid as speech movements but there there is some speed and timing involved Mm. so i would love to understand better what it is about high resistance exercise that you know that addresses swallowing movements more than it or you know can uh, generalize as influences swallowing movements more than it does speech yeah. Well, what what should we tell clinicians? I mean, when I look at the literature on this topic, I feel like I don't feel any better in a way in terms of knowing what to do, i.e., should I be doing any kind of non-speech mm-hmm. treatment yeah. um, for my motor speech patients, whether that be strengthening exercises, um, I don't know, kind of range of motion exercises, uh, relaxing exercises, laryngeal massage for my spastic dysarthric patient. I guess I feel like the, the only option I really have is to kind of fall back on you know, of, of more basic fundamental principle, which is, you know, the best practice for speaking is speaking. I, I think that sums up my philosophy very well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not that we don't ever have patients. So in our, in my practice, which is consultative, I don't mm-hmm. do much direct therapy at all, but I spend a lot of time writing up recommendations for therapy elsewhere. And we do have cases now and then, and I say we, I mean, not just me, but uh, my other colleagues too, where where we wonder if this isn't maybe the person for whom some strengthening might be appropriate. So maybe somebody who's had a, a nerve lesion that is, is now healed or repaired to the extent that it's going to be, but now the muscle has atrophied and deconditioned. Right. Is that somebody who, if they improved or, you know, re-conditioned, uh, would 
their speech improve. Yeah. And so, um, so I think there are times when we think there is a role. It's just a very narrow window, I yeah. think, much more narrow than we would predict based on the observation that a lot of people with dysarthria have weakness. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I never suggest that it should be a primary part of therapy. And it, I mean, there's just never a reason for it to be the only thing we do. So um, I'm, I'm certain that in my recommendations that it will come across that speech is the practice that needs to um, take place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember when I decided, okay, I'm not going to do these exercises with my patient. And this was some time ago, you know, a kind of a, a slight mourning of letting <laughs> go of that because, you know, as, as a, as a newer and, and younger therapist, it was kind of like, you know, it looked like therapy. It looked, right. it, it, it was like a lollipop for my patient. You know, they could suck on, I'm doing something useful here um, mm -hmm. while I kind of try and figure it out. Um, <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think most patients who do those exercises really enjoy them. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. or feel that that is uh, an appropriate use of their time. Although when I ask, you know, did it help hmm. or you know, did your speech improve? That answer isn't always necessarily positive, but, you know, they seem to think that that was, you know, it feels like therapy. Just like Well, yeah, said. right. It, it looks like <clears throat> therapy, unlike, for example, a paper I really liked that was done a, a couple years ago on, this is a motor speech treatment, dysarthria treatment. And the title is something, says something about be clear. Yeah. And the, and the yeah. protocol was basically what you, the therapy was, you just say to your patient, okay, now talk as clearly as you can. And they talk and, you know, I might get the protocol wrong, but it, it's, it's essentially. No, like, I, no okay. I, I think you're spot on there. Yeah. And then, okay, great. Can you be even clearer? Now, you know, <clears throat> I actually was doing that you know, for years before this paper was practiced, because I realized that for many, many of my patients, if I just said that, they could be clear. And, and it seemed to me, well, that's actually better than me telling them what to do, because whatever, whatever they landed on to be clear, was probably more a, a natural expression for them mm -hmm. and therefore probably more likely that they could, you know, do it uh, out there in the world rather than, you know, me tell them to, you know, speak slowly, uh, you know, which, you know, maybe if they landed on that on their own, that's great. But I guess the reason I bring this up is, is that you know, when I do that, uh, in the back of my head, I'm always wondering, you know, does this patient think that this is complete bullshit? Like, we're not really doing therapy here. Like, this is all I have to offer is telling you to be clear. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I, I, uh, 
totally get that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing that struck me about in reading your papers about this topic was in a way, just how complex it is understanding exercise physiology and all of the different factors involved in, let's say a clinician, you know, if we get to the point where let's say we understand these things well enough, a clinician being able to think through that process about, you know, not only the diagnostic part in terms of thinking about the physiology, the muscle tone and these other things, but, you know, how to do the treatment, everything from the intensity to the amount of uh, available strength one uses in an exercise. Um, and that could be based on whether they're just starting or later on. How did you, did, did you find this hard to understand as somebody kind of coming into it without, you know, that formal training? Well, no, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, um, at least initially, I don't think I thought it was hard to understand. Mm. What I found was that there was a huge literature mm -hmm. um, outside of speech pathology that could inform our own practices. And so, you know, not only did I read exercise physiology, and then, you know, kind of physical rehab, but massage techniques and mm. um you know, so there, so there was, there was a lot to understand, but when I read it, it made sense to me. That is, yeah. I could, uh, you know, I thought I could um, integrate it somehow and then make some applications to the musculature we're interested in. What I would say is complex, what I don't, still don't understand mm -hmm. and um, where much still needs to be learned is how the speech musculature differs from the rest of, say, the spinal muscles, not just in muscular composition and direction of fibers and those kinds of things, but how the brain controls those muscles. Right. Um, because even though the theoretical model or the principles that guide modifying muscle tone might be pretty straightforward, if we don't know how the targets of those techniques even appear in the muscles that we're interested in, then, then it becomes very challenging. So, so yeah, I guess I, I talked in circles there, but no. what, what I found to be hard to understand is how the system we're interested in works. The right. principles themselves were easy enough, but we need better information before we can apply them with yeah. confidence. So because the muscle fiber composition of the tongue is different than the muscles in yeah. the limbs. We don't know if we can translate what we know about rehabbing muscles in the limbs to the tongue. Precisely. Um, and, and I'm very grateful that there, there are several groups now who mm. study this. Mm -hmm. um, and in your comment about dosage, intensity, even specificity of training, a number of folks are, are doing that, which is very, very gratifying to me since I really can't do that anymore. Yeah. Um, to, to know that people are still asking those questions. I think we have some guidance now on those mm -hmm. things that we didn't have a decade ago. Right. So it sounds like 
we might get to the point where we'll understand well enough how to apply non-speech treatments. You know, I was thinking, and I'm going to kind of go out on a limb here. I have a client with the primary progressive aphasia. I mean, uh, sorry, primary progressive apraxia of speech and spastic dysarthria. And I was thinking about the, the spastic component and in particular her quite strained, mm-hmm. strangled vocal quality. And she also appeared for whatever reason, and I just started, you know, I'm, she's a new client for me, so I'm still in the process of understanding what's going on. Maybe not enough, Something there's something going on with breath support there. But I was thinking inspiratory, expiratory muscle train, strength training. Mm-hmm. Because I had an interesting experience, and this was somebody that I remember talking to you about at ASHA a couple years ago, a client with basically a a diaphragm tremor. What we realized, she and I, was that inspiratory, expiratory muscle strength training reduced her tremor, her diaphragmatic tremor. And... You know, I wonder if that, and this is something maybe I should look into, you know, that muscle of the diaphragm, if it isn't more as a muscle closer to, looks closer to what we see in the limbs. And so we can translate that literature over more reliably. But in the context of this patient with uh, spastic dysarthria, that somehow having a, a stronger foundation of respiration might relieve some of the pressure off of the larynx. And then we, then this spastic component wouldn't be triggered quite so much. Am I on the right? Do you think I'm, I'm maybe there's a, yeah. a reasonable... no, no, I think that's, um, I think that's a reasonable um, line of, of thinking and, yeah. and worth exploring. I certainly have seen patients who improve their vocal quality with improved respiratory support, even though perhaps the phonatory strain doesn't go away entirely, but um, some of that is relieved. I I would just add one little um, interesting thought because you said your patient also has apraxia of speech Mm. and you, you mentioned this kind of odd respiratory support thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I bring that up, because depending on how much of uh, those of our papers you have read, there is a feature of primary progressive apraxia of speech that is disrupted speech breathing that is not attributable to dysarthria. That is, we see it in people who don't have dysarthria. In fact, it was one of the, I had a patient at Mayo, one of the first patients I saw independently as a fellow has this, uh, so basically what it is, is reduced syllables per breath group, even past, you know, so they might be able to sustain a vowel for 11 seconds, but they can never do more than two syllables per breath group. The way we think about that is that it's a programming limitation. So if the system can't program beyond two sentence or two syllables, it's going to program 
the breathing movements for those two syllables, just like it's programming all the other movements. So it's impossible for me to say from your description yeah, if no, that's, that's the case. You know, that's interesting. And I, and I have to admit, I, I did not read your primary progressive apraxia speech <laughs> papers uh, before this podcast because I figured we'd just talk about dysarthria. Yeah. But also, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't read them before I saw my patient either. I mean, I've read them, but it's been, you know, a couple of years ago and I figured, oh, yeah. well, you know, I understand apraxia of speech and, you know, this is just apraxia yeah. of speech that's progressive. So this is, this is really super helpful. And, and yeah, I definitely need to, to go and read those papers. You know, interesting. I don't think we see that in, in stroke-based apraxia of speech. No, um, no, precisely. Um, and in fact, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the things that we're trying better to understand. Huh. Yeah. And, and, and maybe that observation wasn't pointed out in some of the early papers because we might not have recognized that there's a whole bunch of them that are doing this. Mm. Uh, they tend to be the ones who um, have that segmenting subtype <laughs> of apraxia of speech more so than the, um, uh, or, so we call that the prosodic kind of subtype versus those who make primarily distortion errors or phonetic errors. Can it be really extreme in the sense of, mm -hmm. and the reason I asked this is because like five or six years ago, no, longer than that, um, t maybe 12 years ago, I brought a audio recording and had both Joe Duffy and Mick McNeil listen to it. And it was a gentleman I was seeing at the VA who had this kind of speech. Mm -hmm. And um, and he had a strained component, too, to his vocal quality. Mm -hmm. And I remember Mick said he's got a toxic dysarthria, or maybe like a mixed, a toxic spastic. Mm -hmm. And then Joe said he's got a praxia speech. Oh. Um, and there you go. Yeah. So, yeah. So I guess he's recognized it for a while. Yeah. Maybe, maybe mm -hmm. interesting. I wonder how that would influence the treatment. I mean, the idea mm -hmm. of treating a, is this a motor planning respiratory mm -hmm. motor planning problem? Um, well, that's what, how we're thinking of it yeah. right now um, and basing that on the fact that if you just give them a vowel to sustain mm -hmm. that they have adequate respiratory support but they're not um, engaging it effectively right. um, similar to the fact that they're they can move the speech musculature just fine yeah. um, but can't program those movements so yeah I, th I think that is how we're thinking about it huh. Do you remember if if this was something that showed up early in the disease or or does it show up later? We've we've certainly seen many people where it's present even when speech is not very disrupted at mm. all. So um so I I think it can appear early. That would be interesting to to see a client who sh showed up at your office with essentially um you know short phrase length but 
articulation was decent and have that mm-hmm. be the only primary symptom and then you know say to yourself oh this is a primary progressive apraxia of speech yeah no really mike that's precisely it so we that that is a subgroup of patients that we see in our clinic um, where um, articulation may be completely normal wow um, but it's it's the disrupted prosody segmenting between and within syllables and some and a subgroup of those are clearly segmenting their breath groups as well yeah whereas others might have six or seven syllables on that single breath but it is still very segmented yeah and and i and you guys do you have a paper recently that talks about these two yep. variants of primary progressive mm-hmm. apraxia of speech your clinic there at mayo is that seems pretty good at a identifying these uh, you wrote a paper a few mm-hmm. years ago discussing a primary progressive spastic dysarthria mm-hmm. and you know, one of the things that it, it strikes me about these progressive neurologic diseases is just how many fl- flavors they come in mm-hmm. and how how many patients are, you know, the neurologist doesn't know what it is. That's actually not an uncommon thing. And yep. based on the work that you all are doing it makes me think well they're just someone who you know mayo clinic hasn't figured hasn't identified (laughs) that subcategory yet (laughs) no i um honestly i i don't think you're wrong there especially you know earlier in the podcast we were talking about the relevance of differential diagnosis Mm -hmm. and in fact there are still some centers who don't um, don't recognize the classification of primary progressive apraxia of speech. They continue to insist it's non-fluent aphasia. Mm. Whereas even when they describe it as a motor problem mm-hmm. or whatever. And so um, I think, you know, it's a human phenomenon when you are able to name something you can recognize it. If you don't have a name for it, you don't have a semantic, you know, it's uh yeah, it doesn't show up you know. on your radar screen. And- exactly. So, um, so we have, we have the benefit of, um, or the advantage of recognizing patterns mm. that are probably otherwise, or had previously just been grouped into some larger category. Yeah. And, and therefore their distinctiveness or, what it might tell us about pathology or progression or anything like that is lost. So I, so I think we are very fortunate. And of course, because of the funded projects we have, we're able to bring people in who might not otherwise get to Mayo Clinic and, um, and see more cases. Yeah. You know, I, I just remembered this was, yeah, maybe at least 15 years ago, I had a client who, you know, if my memories are accurate, I think they were a primary progressive spastic dysarthria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I remember at the time his frustration with yeah. not having a diagnosis. Right. 
Um, and I think neurologists in general are reluctant to give somebody a neurologic diagnosis when their neurologic exam is completely normal, mm. except for speech. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I think my colleagues are comfortable doing that because just, you know, their, their practice. But, um, but I think overall, that's less likely. In fact, you know, Mayo has um, what, uh, not what am I looking for? You know, not collaborators or you know, associated medical centers all over the world, right. and the the people responsible for coordinating referrals from those centers ask us, which patients do you want to see? Like, which one should we tell them they should we refer in? Mm -hmm. And at the top of that list is patients who have speech as their primary problem. Mm. Um, will will often get referred to our neurology practice rather than the neurology practice elsewhere because we have that unique expertise yeah and these only speech problems does this tend to be something that's just at, at the beginning of the onset or does this it only is. speech continue for some time yeah uh, no i would say our, you know, we, we have a couple of longitudinal studies going mm -hmm. on. And so our own experience is that, no, it does, it does evolve to include other uh, movement disorders right. or um, uh, even behavioral cognitive disorders. Hmm. Is that, is that simply, or do you think that's simply a reflection of maybe motor speech is a more complex movement than other movements and so that's why speech is showing up first or the pathology the changes are starting in speech motor speech mm -hmm. networks yeah i think uh, more the second thing so uh, the studies that our team has done has included some imaging and uh, these folks that are primary progressive apraxia speech tend to have identifiable either atrophy or just reduced metabolism in the supplemental motor area. Mm. But that's, you know, that's localization. Our team is also trying to figure out what the pathology is likely to be that, you know, causes it to start there. Right, right. Uh, so, so you're um, referring to like, is it a tau pathy or something like exactly. that? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Is that, yeah. is that helpful for us to know? I mean, for us speech pathologists to know? Probably not in a practical standpoint, mm -hmm. but to, you know, if there's an opportunity to share with a referring physician that, you know, when, when somebody presents with a primary uh, apraxia of speech, it's usually a tauopathy, something that mm -hmm. they might use that information right. for something. There aren't very many treatments for tauopathies right now, but there's certainly many in development. So, mm -hmm. but as far as I know, we don't think of different um, interventions, speech interventions based on that pathophysiology versus something else. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Heather, I think I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, so we need to, we need to have a I beer. <laughs> have, I, I have taken up both yeah. enough of your time and, and our listener time. Thank you very much for mm -hmm. doing this. What are you working on on right now? You mentioned a, a couple studies. 
anything that we should keep our eyes out for? Yeah, you know, I think this, the um, apraxia of speech work we're doing is is going to expand a little bit. We're seeing things that we didn't used to think happened in apraxia of speech. So, you know, we mentioned this breathing mm -hmm. thing. Um, we're also noticing that there's a subgroup of these folks who are hypophonic, but not really hypokinetic in any other way. And so, you know, once again, it was just when enough of these showed up, you know, when we realized, wow, there's several there's of these. Um, yeah. yeah. So we're, you know, we might learn a little bit more about how the vocal mechanism is programmed. You know, is, right. is this a, is this part of the apraxia of speech or is this the first sign of a dysarthria? So, um, so I think there might be some interesting things there. Um, and then we've also uh, have a project going now that's looking at both speech and swallowing in different variants of progressive supranuclear palsy. Hmm. And so, you know, there, there aren't many projects that look at those two things simultaneously, especially from a differential diagnosis kind of perspective. So what I hope is uh, maybe a year from now, we'll be able to guide people if you um, have, you know, this kind of speech pattern, it's likely to correspond to these types of swallowing difficulties or vice versa. Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. Well, uh, your clinic and, and your research team are doing great work. Looking forward to reading the things that you publish. Um, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ANCBS podcast. To find out more about the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences, please visit www.ancds.org.